Hey friends, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. This episode might as well be called, Why Can't We Get Along? Emily Lawler and Malachi Barrett join us to talk about Americans and why politically they don't trust each other. As I said, our guests today, Malachi Barrett and Emily Lawler, as always, the one, the only Vice President of Content, John Heiner. Happy Fat Tuesday, my friend. Happy Fat Tuesday to you. Let's pack it in today uh, before uh, the rest of Lent hits us. And also, it's not just Fat Tuesday today. It, according to our weatherman, Mark Torgrosa, is the first day of meteorological spring. I like it. So I'm probably, probably getting out in front of that one over my skis a little on, on <laughs> the weather forecast. Very funny. But it's also a big day, uh, Eric, as you know, regardless of the topic on behind the headlines, we frequently talk about the death of democracy anyways. We do. Yes, it's uh, it's a recurring theme here on this podcast. It's a recurring theme. But today on Fat Tuesday and the first day of meteorological spring uh, and live, we're also celebrating uh, the launch of a, of a long term reporting project on bipartisanship and basically why that has the lack of that has imperiled democracy in America, Michigan, and uh, really uh, across the globe, uh, some disturbing trends on uh, the lack of you know, not just civility in politics, but the ability to get things done in a democratic fashion. And on MLive today and then throughout the week and in uh, Sunday papers, there's going to be some uh, very thought-provoking, well-researched stories um, on the phenomenon, um, the possible impacts on that, and also some things that can be done about it. And to talk about today are the people who led the project and worked on the project, uh, our political editor in Lansing, Emily Lawler. Welcome back, Emily. Hey, thanks for having me. I've lost track. It's six or seven, but we always love having you on. Uh, Right behind her in appearances probably is our next guest, uh, political reporter in Lansing, Malachi Barrett. Good morning, Malachi. Morning. Happy meteorological spring. <laughs> I, I would wish more of my friends that if I could pronounce it quickly. That's a mouthful. I do not have a mouthful of punchki, but uh, that is a mouthful. Uh, this is not like this is breaking news, right? Uh, anybody, who, this goes back to, frankly, Newt Gingrich, you know, and the contract with America and the 90s and probably before that, but you can almost chronicle uh the you know uh, the loss of uh, you know, partisanship across all spectrum of politics. But tell us, uh, Emily, a little about the work that went into this to to actually quantify uh, the decline in partisanship, and then like what some of the costs are of that. Yeah, so it started as um, sort of a gut feeling that maybe things weren't getting done um, like they'd used to. Obviously, we had some really um, pointed rhetoric uh, <laughs> that the different parties were aiming at each other for portions of the pandemic. Um, and even before that, if you remember, like the 2019 budget just sort of turned into a, um, a infighting uh, sort of deal with a bunch of vetoes. Um, so, you know, I sort of had a sense that that people weren't, weren't getting along and that that sort of wasn't the incentive, right? Like, you know, every two years, um, representatives in Michigan are up for election and same with the congressional delegation. Um, and, you know, you're really running to your base 
And in a primary, especially if you're in a district that's been drawn to heavily favor your party, your primary sort of decides the race. So the incentive is for you to be as in line with the furthest, uh, the furthest right or left portion of your party um, and not necessarily work across the aisle. And, you know, I think it's, it's sort of a, I, I don't know if I would say a misconception, maybe a correct conception. Is that a, <laughs> is that a phrase? Um, but sort of a correct conception that, you know, some of these lawmakers are looking at compromise as sort of a dirty word and thinking, you know, maybe two years from now, my party will have a majority or I won't have to worry about the other side, as opposed to really looking and saying, how can I work with the other side to get something done? In Malachi, in stories you wrote, well-researched, you talked to a lot of lawmakers, current, former, uh, some people who are serving now on some, you know, think tank sort of groups that are looking at trying to address these rifts in politics. Where did you start and what were some of the things you found along the way that perhaps would be surprising to our readers? Well, I mean, I think this project really started with us acknowledging what seems pretty obvious to a lot of people. And that is just that a lot of people don't trust each other anymore. And, you know, this is one thing that I really became familiar with uh, covering the 2020 election politics and who you elect and who you give power uh, you know, to make decisions that affect your life. It, you know, it really just comes down to trust. Who, who do you think is going to be the best person that's going to advocate on your behalf? Um, and, you know, we're in a situation now where a lot of people don't like politics at all. They don't want to engage with it. They don't want to engage with the system. They don't trust their politicians. They don't trust institutions. They don't trust us in the news media, you know, public health officials, school board officials, up and down the line. Um, what we wanted to find out was how is this being manifested today? Because I think, as you mentioned, you know, this is something we've been thinking about, worrying about for a long time. As one reader pointed out to us today, you know, George Washington had uh, warned about the dangers of, of partisanship and political parties. And what we found in talking to researchers, uh, there was one uh, professor at Michigan State University, Zachary Neal, who's actually a professor of psychology and uses computer analysis, a lot of complicated math. He doesn't really come from the political world, but he put this mathematic model on bills that he researched going back to the 70s, I believe. The idea was he wanted to see if he could create these connection points that would show how uh, members of Congress worked you know, with each other and basically draw lines between uh, Democrats and Republicans. And what he found is that over time, those lines became less common. And so we've really seen this kind of splintering, this, this polarization, this, you know, lack of working across the aisle that has accelerated since the 90s and has gotten to the point now where he described it as you basically can't get any worse. I mean, this is this is kind of as polarized as Congress can be as a political body. You know, there is a lot of legislation that's worked on behind the scenes that that comes forward, you know, gets passed that does have bipartisan support. It's a lot of the kind of things that you would expect your government to do, a lot of kind of financial bills and, you know, minor pieces of legislation. But a lot of what dominates the conversation, a lot of what lawmakers spend their time talking about, a lot of what we spend our time focusing on about, uh, you know, these are issues where lawmakers, you know, flex their power through the majority and they don't, they don't feel like they need to get support from, you know, more moderate Democrats if you're a Republican, because if you have, you know, a, a majority plus one, you can get your bills through. And so that's been kind of more of a strategy that we've seen in the last couple of decades. 
Yeah, and there's then, an old saying that the Senate is, U.S. Senate is the greatest deliberative body in the world and all this, when really what you're describing is the only deliberation that ever happens is the election. Because after that, it's like pretty pro forma. And I read a fascinating article. This was a long, a while back, years ago, but it was about where this, someone tried to track back the roots of it. And I mentioned Newt Gingrich. And when he took a command of, of the House back in, it was 92 or 94, whatever it was, but he issued a bunch of rules to his party saying, you can't stay in town over the weekend. You come in on Tuesday, you leave on Thursday. You, you don't be seen with people from the other party. We don't compromise. And you documented the same thing in Michigan that from some of the old politicos who remembered a time when they played on softball teams or bands together and things like that. And that there was a social component to it too. There was a, pack, a compact that you were working to get public policy done. And now it seems like it's all prepackaged, predetermined, and they just follow the lead of their parties. Is that, is that pretty much right? Yeah. I mean, frankly, one of the best examples we got of that was from John Lindstrom, a longtime Capitol reporter who started um, covering the Capitol in the 1970s. And, you know, he told me something that I didn't even realize having covered the Capitol for um, a decade (laughs) is that um, lawmakers. So when you are in a late night session, I stopped myself from saying when you are stuck in a late night session, they're never (laughs) voluntary for the press corps. Um, (laughs) But, you know, when you're in a late night session, you know, typically it'll get to like six, seven o'clock. And if they realize that they're not going to be able to push the legislation through in the next hour or so, they'll say, "Okay, break for dinner. So what happens now, the modern incarnation of this and what I've always experienced in the last 10 years is that each caucus gets its own dinner. So, you know, the Republicans get a dinner, the Democrats get a dinner, um, members go get their food, sometimes out in the lobby, um, and then go back to their caucus room. And they're only talking to members of their own party. And it's sort of a time to like deal make. There are there's some liaisoning that goes back and forth between the two caucuses, but on an official level, not a personal level. So I didn't realize that, um, you know, John was telling us that that time used to be where they went out and struck a deal with with members of the other party. So, you uh, you know, years ago, people would go out to dinner during that period. Um, they would go off campus. They would go to a bar, maybe get some some drinks, and they would talk between Democrats and Republicans, real person to real person, hammer out a deal, and come back with a solution that had real input from both sides. That's not happening anymore, and those camps are just so separate. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you makes this package, I think, really pop is the, how you quantify. You go back and look at bills passed by, uh, you know, by each legislative session and each kind of who was in the governor's office at the time. Then you track vetoes. Why don't you talk a little bit about the quantitative part of this and what that revealed? Yeah, so um, Taylor uh, was a huge help. I just shied away from pronouncing his last name. Desormo? Desormo. (laughs) Taylor, French last name, was a huge help (laughs) in tracking down um, all the data. And uh, basically, he pulled data from the state archives going back to the 1950s um, that really proved out that actually, yes, it does seem like more vetoes are happening because they are. (laughs) So actually, the last three governors um, have had the most vetoes of of any governor, but our current governor has vetoed the most. So it seems like sort of an escalating trend 
um, that we sort of get to that ultimate point of disagreement and the veto pen comes out. Um, and then I also um, borrowed a, a team of reporters to go through and see um, bills that had passed on a bipartisan basis. So we took it, um, the threshold we set because a lot of times one a one-off member from either party will vote for the other party's bills. So I didn't want it to be like one member. So we set a 10% threshold. So 10% of both parties in both chambers would mean that it was a bipartisan bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back just through the last eight years of, um, of bill history, basically, um, you know, the, the trend line looks, looks a lot like the veto trend line. So um, you know, in 2021, we actually saw the lowest percentage of bipartisan bills um, passed uh, than we've seen before. And that was still in the 80-something percents, um, but, you know, in the previous eight years, it had been in the 90-something percents more often than not. Yeah, I think of it like a bridge, say like the Mackinac Bridge. And the guardrails that are there are like a last resort sort of thing. <laughs> like, like occasionally somebody hits the guardrail. But like if the veto's the guardrail, is like there's a lot of crashes going on, right? It's like a, it's like your last resort, you know. That means you're not getting it done in a, uh, in negotiations. You're not getting it done in caucus, you know, meetings and things. Um, and uh, I mean, a veto also don't the authors of bills know that something's going to get vetoed? How much of that is political? You're going to do it anyways to make a statement. Yeah, you actually uh, brought up a point that I think the governor's uh, press secretaries are trying to uh, to elevate as well. And that is, you know, uh, there's a lot of junk legislation that comes forward. That's not unique in Michigan. That happens in Congress. There's a lot of bills that are purely political that don't really have any real chance of doing what they claim to want to achieve or, or just getting you know passed in the first place. Um, and we see this, you know, come up a lot in election years. Uh, as we are in right now, uh, especially folks that are running for re-election or trying to raise their profile, they'll introduce a lot of legislation that um, you know might make an interesting headline or grab attention, but is not necessarily realistic. Um, we've seen some candidates for offices uh, say that they're going to get rid of state departments that they're not constitutionally able to do. Um, that's one example. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Like, um, it's a complicated thing that's going on. We we found in the research of Congress that, that we were able to talk with our experts about that it's, you know, the it seems as though Republicans are moving further to the right faster than Democrats are moving further to the left. There's still that division happening on both ends. You know, they're they're running kind of toward their their poles, toward their mm-hmm. extremes, you could say, um, but you know, the lack of wanting to collaborate goes in both directions as well. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more extreme, you could call it legislation that's being brought forward. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think the main problem is that there aren't these forums or venues for maybe the, the calmer heads <laughs> in the two parties to get together. There's a lot of bad incentives for our lawmakers. There's a lot of um, you know, benefits to being partisan and being political. You know, we've mentioned campaigns and elections. It helps with the fundraising. It helps, you know, when you have these primaries and we're going to see it in Michigan this year is we've got a lot of lawmakers who are endorsed by uh, former President Trump who are going to be running more toward the Trump base. And they're running against, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, incumbent Republicans who are a little bit more moderate. Um, you know, it, and so that's a problem. I mean, we need to 
really think seriously about ways to kind of incentivize more moderation and more bipartisanship. And we, you know, we talked to folks about some ways to do that. I think part of the problem in Lansing with the political culture, with people not being able to build these relationships and, you know, go out uh, and, and get to know each other as real people instead of just Republicans and Democrats. Part of that is the leadership. Part of that is term limits. Folks aren't able to stay in office long enough to build those relationships. They end up ceding a lot of power to um, lobbyists and political interest groups who have more like experience and institutional knowledge about how Lansing works. Uh, you know, there's an old joke that, you know, lawmakers, it takes them, you know, most of their first term to figure out where the bathroom's at. And then all of their second term to figure out how to actually introduce a bill. Uh, I didn't come up with that. Other people say that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's that's part of it. There's there's good government reforms that we can make here. I mean, we, we've been talking a lot of doom and gloom here, but I think it's important to realize, too, that, you know, there's no silver bullet, but there are there are things we can do here. And I think part of it starts with everybody kind of acknowledging that we have a role to play in this, um, you know, the way that we interact and engage with politics could be better, could be healthier. It, it was healthier not that long ago. You yeah. know, uh, it's been pretty bad throughout most of my lifetime, but, you know, other folks remember a time where it wasn't this awful. And it's been worse than other times before. I mean, we've had periods of history where lawmakers beat each other on the, the Senate floor. Um, you know, we've had a civil war in this country. So I think that's an important, you know, message as we, we think about this too, is that, you know, we've gotten through things like this before and we can, we can do it again. Right. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an MLive podcast. I'm John Heiner, Vice President of Content, and your co-host with Eric Halkren of Behind the Headlines. Today, we're talking with Emily Lawler and Malachi Barrett about a fantastic piece of journalism, but also uh, a little bit sobering uh, that we're calling the death of bipartisanship and actually sub-headline sub, uh, death of de democracy or decline uh, because of the inability of political parties to find common ground. You know, there's a story, maybe apocryphal, that, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to go sip bourbon or do whatever. They'd smoke some cigars or whatever they did. Um, and, and you also talked about in Lansing um, some of the stories people remember about going to dinners or, or outside of the chamber. Uh, but then in your stories, you talk to people like Peter Meyer, who in another era would have probably looked like a hard right Republican. But today is the pilloried for being too moderate. Um, you know, what's the incentives for people to do that, number one? And then second, after you answer that, we're going to get into some of the solutions type things that you've outlined in your journalism as well. But how do you incentivize uh, a return to at least partisan mindset or bipartisan mindset and in, in, in working together? Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of one thing you'll see reflected in, in our article is that um, people tend to reflect their districts, right? And we've just gone through a huge redistricting process. But, you know, you mentioned uh, Peter Meyer. His area of the state is getting a lot more purple than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, same with someone like Alyssa Slatkin. Um, you know, she turned that district blue. It wasn't before. Um, and the demographics of that district are changing. And she's sort of... Uh, uh, put in that more moderate stance as well. So I do think that, um, you know, fairer districts to some extent um, help elect candidates who don't run to the extremes or who are incentivized to run to the middle instead of, um, 
instead of those far ends. So I think that's one thing we've seen and, um, you know, sort of to be determined if the new districts help that um, play out. <laughs> Obviously, they've been done by a, an independent commission for the fir first time in Michigan. Um, previously, they were drawn um, by political parties, and political operatives. So, um, you know, that's one thing. And then um, Malachi mentioned campaign finance as well. One thing that we didn't really realize or maybe just didn't spend a lot of time thinking about before uh, we went into this project was just how much time uh, like your average congressperson is spending on the phone fundraising. <laughs> so, right. you know, it honestly, like, it does seem like it cuts into the time where you could potentially grab a beer with someone if you're making a bunch of calls every single time, uh, every single, single free moment you have in DC. Um, and then these sort of email fundraising pitches, right, where like something incendiary really fires up your base and raises you the most money, um, as opposed to just sort of normal run of the mill good government. Um, and then, you know, as citizens too, like, when was the last time you contacted your congressperson just to let them know what was going on in your community or how you felt about something versus when you were extraordinarily angry. <laughs> so I do think right. that we're sort of losing track of that middle of the road and that there are ways we can edge back in that direction. Or like, just go ahead and camp on social media and, and pour, you know, fuel on the, the flames of, you know, uh, disinformation, misinformation, anger, fighting, infighting. Anyways, uh, there was, there's a great post as a part of this package on six things that could be done. I love it when we have solutions-based journalism. I think my favorite one of the six is don't elect jerks. That, that was a good one. I mean, that's just a good life advice too, right? Don't marry jerks, don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, why don't we run through a couple of those? One, and I'll tell you, this is kind of funny because, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I was someone who thought, you know, term limits seem like a good idea uh, because look at these career politicians and they're in, they're in with the lobbyists and stuff. But pretty quickly, you, you realized that the loss of institutional knowledge and the security of knowing you're going to still be elected, even if you make an unpopular decision or support a bill for the public good, we've lost all of that. And to your point, these re-election cycles, especially in the House, make it so it, you just show up and follow your caucus, right? Yeah, I don't think anybody's looking for a you know elite ruling class of politicians who are entrenched and can never be voted out right like i think term limits in concept are not necessarily a bad thing and that's why a lot of voters supported them in the first place um you know the issue seems to be that michigan's are the strictest in the country and we have gone farther than any other state uh in in restricting you know how long somebody can be in office and and how long someone can stay in one chamber or the other um and that's where a lot of the problem you know, comes in. Um, I don't think anybody, again, is looking for these kind of smoky backroom deals or, you know, politicians who are uh, able to serve, you know, far beyond their, their, uh, their prime. Uh, you know, as a younger person, sometimes I, I lament how many uh, dinosaurs we have in, in Congress in the legislature <laughs> who don't maybe reflect uh, younger people. Anyway, um, but you know, I think there's a way to adjust term limits. It's, um, you know, it, it requires kind of a complicated message to voters because, you know, in concept, again, I think a lot of people support this idea, but they need to understand that what it has created is a situation where we have a lot of inexperienced lawmakers who rely on the experience of outside groups that are not held accountable in the same ways that lawmakers are. You can't hold lobbyists accountable. You can't vote them out. Um, 
and you know, it's, it's the culture issues are a problem as well. Um, you know, when people are able to spend less time here, they, they go with their leadership. They don't, um, you know, they don't have the opportunity to branch out and get to know other people, but I don't know, Emily, you have a lot more experience with that. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, one other thing is that the leadership has been here most times for one term before they get elected, sometimes two terms. Um, but, you know, we're we're basically pitting people against each other for those top posts immediately as soon as they get here. Um, and when we do that, there is more incentive to build coalitions within your own caucus, not across the aisle. So I, I do think that that's had an effect too. And, you know, I, I also think that people are sort of, shifting a little bit on term limits. I think that people are sort of like you did, John, saying, you know, I supported this super strongly. Do I support it now? And sort of running back through that in their minds. Um, so, you know, I do think that it's a it's a good time to re-examine that issue and see whether um, there are some changes that could be beneficial, um, see what, what states are doing it well and what states are seeing some successes there. Yeah, don't even respond to this because this is the part of the program that Eric knows really well, where I say some off the cuff, you know, BS that has no, <laughs> no likelihood of ever happening. But I look at European democracies and I'm saying they're, they're better or great, but when you have multiple party system, they're forced to form coalitions after every, after every election. And it, it almost forces uh, compromise and, you know, building these kind of these, uh, these blocks, and you, you have to give something up in order to do that. And it's so entrenched. I know it, it, it's almost like the, the, these alternate football leagues that come up to take on the NFL is not going to happen. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't see in my lifetime an, a viable third party or fourth party happening in America. But, you know, who, who knows? We're at the point now where we need something different. So uh, the last thing I want to just bring up is a get you got you got a get you got for your reporting, which was a sit down with former Governor Rick Snyder. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about that, his perspective? Um, and, you know, was looking back, I mean, he he had some ideas coming into office that he was going to be a different kind of politician. But ultimately, how did he come away from that experience? Um. So yeah, so I covered Rick Snyder for all eight of his years um, in office. And it actually like super coincidentally, I just graduated from college and started being a reporter the same year that he started being the governor. <laughs> so I guess I have that history there. Um, but you know, he, you know, he came in with that relentless positive action was his his mantra. I'm sure that you remember um, he came in wanting to work in dog years to get things done. Um, he had the advantage of a Republican led uh, House and Senate. So he um, obviously, you know, was able to get a lot done, um, but that's not to say it was always easy. And there were issues where he had to really build coalitions across the aisle. Um, you know, you look at something like the Detroit bankruptcy, for instance, um, at the time in Lansing, I remember people were saying there was Detroit fatigue. Republicans were feeling like um, bailing out the city one more time wouldn't be worth it. Um, and he really had to pull pull his own party along to that idea. And he did. And he got the piece of the funding that allowed Detroit to fully um, settle and, uh, you know, sort of restart its its life after bankruptcy. So, you know, I think that there were some some real bipartisan moments that he had. Uh, certainly there were partisan moments as well. You'll recall, like, right to work, he initially said was too divisive and then ended up signing. So, um, you know, it's sort of both ways. But I, I think that 
that is kind of how the system's designed to work, right? Compromises that you you win some and you lose some, and every party wins some and loses some. But it was really great to catch up with him. And honestly, um, you know, uh, this is yeah. Rick Snyder is the first governor that I I covered a whole a whole term for. Um, but it was just really good to see him again. It felt like like seeing an old friend um, to some extent, uh, an old frenemy maybe at times, depending on how the news cycle was going. Um, but he really hasn't given that many interviews, uh, certainly since leaving office. This was the first sort of long form one I've seen. Um, and it's because this is an issue he's really passionate about, um, you know, leaving office. This is sort of the biggest problem he saw and the biggest thing that he wants to take a bite of the apple on is how can we work together more effectively for better outcomes for everybody? Right. You know, lots of alarm bells are ringing. Um, there's a lot of smoke. <laughs> there's got to be fire. But from, you know, January 6th wasn't the beginning of this. It was sort of an outgrowth of, of, of how polarized things have become and how dangerous it can become, both just uh, danger to people and danger to democracy. And, and thank you both. And uh, for the other reporters, uh, Taylor, Sam Robinson, who worked on this, um, all the support we got from uh, other MLive employees, it dropped today on MLive, uh, the, the death by partisanship, and we'll be running all week and we'll see it in our Sunday papers. Thank you again for joining and talking about this great project, Emily Lawler, and thank you, Malachi Barrett. Hey, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. And appreciate the bandwidth to pursue something this big. <laughs> yeah, go read it, everybody. <laughs> and there they go. A big thanks to Emily and Malachi for once again joining the podcast. As always, if you like what John and I are doing, like, comment, or share wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, he is John Heiner, I am Eric Hulkerin, and this is Behind the Headlines.